Episode 17, Q&A with Brendan Byrne. You're listening to SpecsCast. Welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and today we'll be sharing a conversation with Brendan Byrne. Brendan is a producer for public radio station WMFE in Orlando and a space reporter for Florida's Space Coast. He's also the host of space exploration podcast, Are We There Yet? Talking about the science and technology of getting humans to Mars. We picked his brain for a few hours back in July. Now, before we start, uh, just another quick update from RIT Specs. Our friend Augie has been out at the SmallSat Conference 2016 this weekend in Logan, Utah. And all day today, he live tweeted day one of the conference on August 6th. The conference features speakers from NASA Ames, Clyde Space, and other big players in the small sat industry, and it'll be going on all weekend and concludes on Tuesday, August 8th, with a talk from keynote speaker Gwen Shotwell, who is the president of SpaceX. So be sure to follow him all weekend. He just got a brand new uh, external battery pack for his phone, and he'll be live tweeting the whole thing from our Twitter at R-I-T-Specs, that's R-I-T-S-P-E-X. And um, afterward, we'll record our own debrief session with him about the SmallSat Conference 2016. Anyways, uh, here's me, Augie, TJ, and Drew speaking with Brendan Byrne. I'm Brendan Byrne. I am the space reporter at WMFE in Orlando, Florida. So I've always been fascinated by um, by the space industry. I've, I've lived in Florida my whole life. Um, I lived in South Florida for most of it. And um, just like my dad was a big space nerd, and um, there was an opportunity for me to go to space camp when I was in school. Oh, that and sounds awesome! So yeah, so I went to space camp, and my dad actually finagled his way in as a chaperone so that he could go to space camp too. So he had, <laughs> I think he had more fun than I did there. Um, but I, I've always had that that passion for it. You know, growing up, you know, you with the shuttle. Even in South Florida, 200 miles away, you could go in your backyard and you could see it. And, you know, to be able to live in, you know, the 80s and 90s through that was really, really cool. Um, but then, like, I tried to do it in school, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to get an engineering tear. I was, I'm awful at math. I'm awful. <laughs> so it, it just it never worked out for me. Um, so the fact that, that I can report on space is kind of like the next best thing. Um, and, and that was – that was something I actually had to sell to my my station managers when I when I got there and I said, you know, this is something that we stopped covering when when shuttle was retired in 2011. I came to the station about 2012, 2013, and um, we did not have a presence reporting space. And so I, I I made the pitch and I said, hey, you know, can I do a few space stories and just see see what our listeners think about it and it was just this overwhelming response that people were like, "You need to do this. This is great. This is great." So it, it kind of everything kind of happened organically. You know, it was it was kind of like it was meant to be. And um, I consider myself very, very lucky to have the opportunity to do this and to um, to kind of have the opportunity to to be able to tell these really, really great stories and and kind of keep people up to date about what's going on because space is really, really cool and I think more people need to know about it and, and so I'm glad to play just even a little part in, in getting people to know about it. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement there. Are We There Yet? Podcast is awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, 
And you said in a few episodes back that you were in the top 10 science podcasts on iTunes for a time, and you were also a new noteworthy and everything. But what I'm wondering is where did the name come from? So my reporting started with um, kind of looking at, at NASA has this big PR push for their their journey to Mars. Um, and so my a lot of my reporting was was based around you know these media events about this you know journey to Mars and we're going to Mars and we're doing this and we're doing that and we have all of this technology and it's going to get us to Mars and one of my editors just was just like well when is it going to happen and so my reporting was not if we're going to go to Mars because I'm, I'm seeing all of this technology I'm seeing all of this stuff um, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when um, so I started approaching my reporting saying well when are we going to get there um, and that's kind of when we decided to do a space exploration podcast and we were looking for witty, fun names. I was like, you know what? Are we there yet? That's probably the best name for it because that's what every episode asks is, you know, how close are we to that that end goal of, you know, deep space exploration? And it kind of just – it came from there. There were a few other names like Blast Off and T-Zero, and they were all stupid names. So I, I'm glad <laughs> we settled on Are We There Yet? And when do you think that'll be? When do you think we'll, we will be there yet? And will you have a podcast anymore <laughs> after that happens? Yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't have uh, set an end date to the podcast there. Um, I, you know, I think I don't it, – it's a fine line. There's – each day I'm kind of wavering. You know, I'll see some really great things um, going on in the, you know, in the engineering aspects of things um, in, in, you know, some great visionaries out there. Uh, and then, and then you'll see stuff in Congress where you know funding gets slashed and all that stuff. So I, I'm kind of like it's this wave of emotion that I go through when, um, you know, being optimistic about getting to Mars and then being you know very cynical about the whole process. But I think I think by the late 20s, by the late 20s, we'll have we'll have a human presence on Mars. I think that's kind of ambitious, um, but I think there's a lot of ambitious people out there that are. It's ambitious, but it, it lets Elon slip because he was saying 2018 and the next window is in 2020. So <laughs> that's Elon time. I mean, yeah. that, 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 as a reporter, you always you look at dates that come from SpaceX and you're like, OK, add two years to that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it'll be uh, private entities that reach Mars first or, or NASA? I think it's gonna, it has to be both. Um, I think NASA has the infrastructure that um, that's going to get there. But I think the private industry is the one that has the the ambition to actually do it. And I don't think either one can do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just looking at the plans for, um, for SpaceX's Mars trip, they're using NASA's deep space network. They don't have a network of communication that they can use. Um, so they have to use that. And um, there's uh, – but, but NASA also doesn't have the, the – it's it's not ambitious isn't the right word they they don't have that uh, accelerated timeline that that the private industry does to get there as well so I, I really think that it's going to be a private public partnership that gets there and also multinational this this is a huge huge project um, and you're you're going to need the help from other space agencies as well I mean even just look at the next EM one test the Orion test I mean that's the, a lot the service modules built by the ESA um, so there's there's quite a bit of it's going to be a, a global 
um, coming together to actually get this to work, if, if it's going to happen at all. Now, do you see it as a similar project to the ISS, where different countries build different components, and with the SLS, you know, the upper stage, or is it going to be something where each country or entity contributes their own experience, but you have like one set of hardware that's all been designed coherently? That's a good question. I actually I haven't thought about that. Um, it might be too early to even tell. Um, you know, something like the International Space Station, that was really a, not only was that an amazing contribution to, to science and space engineering, but it also was a testament to international relations and, and how we could, how we could build things together. So, so the, the process has already been done that we could do something like that. I think with, with the way that NASA is spending, spending their money on SLS Orion, the ground systems, I think it's going to be a NASA led mission with help from, um, from other agencies like ESA Jacks, um, and then also um, also private industry as well. What do you suppose the public's role is, whether it's, as we've already talked about, international, or if it's just the American public, um, what the public's role is in space exploration? Do we have a responsibility to be informed about this? I mean, or should we, should the public actively take part in this whole process? Or is it something that's just will take place in the background and we'll all benefit from it in some form of another. That's a great question, and I, I absolutely think that the public needs to, to be a part of this. You look at NASA's budget, that's $20 billion a year they're getting, and that's that's from the American taxpayer. Um, and that money is also spent by the lawmakers that the American people put in office. Um, so you, the American people have an enormous responsibility as to getting the right people into into Washington to make the right decisions for the space program um, because frankly there's some people in in Congress that don't know what they're talking about when it comes to science and space exploration um, and so putting the pressure on the politicians to, to give that money and put that money where it needs to be is extremely important for the American people now we also have to show a public interest in the program or else that money doesn't get funneled to NASA. If there's no public interest and there's no public pressure on these lawmakers to move the money where it needs to go, then things don't happen. Um, so it, it's, it, it starts with, it starts with the, the American voter, it starts with the American taxpayer. Um, it's vital that they play a role in this and that they stay informed and that they know what they're talking. And, and you can kind of, you can kind of see public opinion shifting. Um, there was that asteroid redirect mission. That was that was in NASA's budget books. Um, but then some House members and, and some space subcommittee said, you know, we're hearing this is probably not the best thing to do. So they rewrote that budget to not include going to the asteroid redirect mission, instead setting up a, a lunar base. So the influence that, that the lawmakers have on how NASA spends their budget is huge. But the influence of those people start with with us, the the American public people. Uh, do you see a time where a politician's space policy becomes like a main deciding factor for voters? I know that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump don't really have space on their platform at all as like a main item. 
So do you think that would change in the future where not only presidential candidates, but, you know, senators, congressmen, they start caring about space when talking to their constituents? I absolutely hope so. Um, I don't think now is the time for it. And, and I, I don't think that we're going to hear too much about it in, in this presidential election. But this is a, a huge time for, for NASA because we've already heard that, you know, Charlie Bolden, who's the head of NASA, his deputy administrator, Donovan Newman, they're both saying that they're probably not going to be here for the next administration. So the next president, uh, whomever it may be, gets to pick the next head of NASA, which directs the policy of NASA. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge thing for, uh, for space policy, but I, I don't think it's going to be a major platform. Now, as we get closer to getting – in people into deep space, moving our exploration efforts to places like Mars or reestablishing a lunar base, then yes, it's going to be a big thing, but I, I don't think it is uh, right now. There's There's been some great work from the planetary societies. Uh, Casey Dreyer, I believe is his name, uh, he handles uh, po uh, space policy, and he's been trying to compile um, some information on their the presidential uh, candidate's platform when it comes to space policy. Now go down a few levels down and space is a huge thing um, when it comes to senatorial and, and, and congressional candidates, especially in places like um, you know, Florida's Space Coast, you look at places like Mashoud, you look at places like um, you know, Goddard and JPL, they're actively lobbying for space money just so that they can bring money back to their district. So you, you, you start to see that policy on, on a district-by-district district level. Um, but to answer your original question, I, I don't know if we're going to hear too much about space policy this election year. We absolutely should be hearing about space policy this election year because it's it's huge that there will be a new administration coming in, uh, in, in both the White House and a new administration in NASA. Um, so we, we really should be paying attention. So that's something we all need to be uh, we all need to be talking about uh, in our various uh, media outlets. As far as uh, being a listener to a show like our podcast or yours, what what could someone do, like if they're not, you know, already working in aerospace? What what would be something that they could do to contribute to space exploration at all? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think just um, I like I like the term, you know, exploration evangelist, you know, really just kind of spreading the word um, about the really cool things that that we're doing, like just, you know, um, consuming all of the news of of what's happening in space and, and being up to date on it. That way you can make those informed decisions when it comes to you know, voting for your next congressman, voting for your, your next senator, um, looking at the presidential ballot. Um, you can do that. Uh, you know, my friends, I'm sure, get sick of me talking about space all the time. But, you know, when we hang out, I tell them about all the cool stuff that they're doing, and um, they really get into it. And, you know, they go off and they say, hey, this is really cool. Um, there's a lot of nonprofits out there that are lobbying for deep space exploration and, and planetary sciences. The big one that comes to mind is the Planetary Society. You know, you can you can join that. Um, you know, help them with with their funding, and um, they send out great newsletters. They got great people that work for them. Um, Bill Nye is the head of the Planetary Society. I don't think there's a, a bigger planetary evangelist than Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, so just staying informed and spreading the word uh, and getting people involved in it. Because you know, if if we talk about space exploration every day, 
um, then that's something that our leaders are going to have to talk about every day as well. I have a question that kind of ties into the whole, um, you know, being a proponent of space and, and space policy. Is there any uh, po- alternative political landscape that you're a proponent of or would support? Um, like I know there's been a lot of proposals out there that talk about having a director that stays for a 10-year period so that you know less plans get scrapped as the politicians from a high level change hands. Is there anything like that that you think is a, a better option than our current political landscape? Uh, that's a good question. I, I haven't really looked too much into that. Um, you know, it, it, bureaucracy is bureaucracy, and sure. it, it is what it is. Um, I think... NASA's done a, a very good job at kind of trying to maintain some some sort of uh, normalcy and and some sort of continuity. Um, I don't know if you'll ever be able to truly get rid of you know that that bureaucracy. Maybe if we had a space czar or someone who had a lifetime <laughs> appointment or something like that. But um, I, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, would, that would that would be interesting. I think to have. Uh, Elon as a as a space czar, but um, I think that you just people in the industry they they know how to how to work it, and um, you know I, I have faith that that they're they're able to to kind of make that work. But but then it goes back to it just that public accountability and and having the public be aware of what's going on, and uh, you know being able to say hey this this is not working or this is this is what we want to do as a as a as a society, as a race, as, as you know, this is what we want to do. So, I don't know. That that that's a good question. Um, it just seems like something that um, you know, a plan. If we had a plan for a different outline of NASA, we as a public could push for that. But there's not really a clear way. There's not really a clear plan out there, a clear alternative. So, so I mean, it's definitely good to just push for space exploration in general, and obviously that's only going to help. But I was just curious if you had anything, uh, anything like that. Well, now I'm going to start thinking about it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that, I think the way that we're that we're set up now is um, it works. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely room for improvement. And you don't want you don't want them to have you know too much too much power. You, sure. you need to be able to sometimes just realize that oh my gosh, this is just a money dump. Like I mean, Constellation that was just a, a dump of money, <laughs> and yeah. and they 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 had the the right sense of mind. To, to pull the plug on that and kind of reassess and do what they had to do. Um, so you, you need to have somebody to make tough decisions like that and not just be like, well, I know what I'm doing. I'm here for the next 10 years and this is what we're doing. So I think to be able to have that, that kind of accountability uh, keeps, keeps leaders in check and, and, and also keeps, keeps the, um, the momentum going. But I, I will have to start actively thinking about that. That's a very good question. It also sounds like one thing that would be really beneficial is to educate politicians themselves on what certain space things mean, like um, what it takes to go to the moon, what it takes to go to Mars, and at least on a higher level, so they're conscious, like, uh, so they can evaluate these different missions and, and things when they're distributing or lobbying for money. I absolutely agree. And one great case study uh, of that is, you know, Florida's own Senator Bill Nelson. Um, I believe he was a, a congressman at the time, but they sent him to space. Um, they they 
put him. He was a payload specialist on one of the shuttle missions. You're gonna um, say he was a payload. <laughs> he, well, pretty much, <laughs> but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what he specialized on that mission. But but he was up there, and I know they sent another another politician. But I've I've lost his name. But it's a very funny story because he was he was sick the entire time. Oh they actually have they have a new like. There, when you get space sickness, um, it's a, a level of how sick you are, and they base it on how sick this this politician was. <laughs> but but going back to Bill Nelson, um, you know this was man, I want to say this was in the late '90s, early 2000s when he he went up on shuttle, um, and he is like the biggest proponent of of space exploration. He always talks about it, and you know you sit down and you talk with him about space, and this guy knows what he's talking about, um, and whether that's because you know he's in Florida and he's from Central Florida and, and that's that he's just been raised in, or it's because that he's been to space, he's been through the astronaut training program, he knows what they do. Um, I think that that really helps, and that's you're absolutely right, Phil. That educating these politicians as to the importance of certain aspects of space exploration, planetary exploration, um, and really what needs to be done, where it needs to be spent is is vital. And that goes back to that, that original point that we were talking about before is that getting the public involved, the public holds these these folks accountable. That's, that's the big thing. I'd like to um, talk about your personal experiences actually with the Space Coast and space reporting. Um, how, how many missions have you, how many launches have you seen? In my lifetime, yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, Do you try to make it to every launch that happens out of the Cape? Um, I try to. If if they're not, I mean, space exploration is not a nine to five kind of thing. So there's there's some odd wonky times where these things are launched. Yeah. Um, I do try to make it out to all of them if I can. Um, I would say I've seen hundreds in, in my lifetime. Um, but there, I mean, there's. There's something so cool about you don't you don't see a launch, um, you feel it, and yeah. you don't hear a launch, you you feel it. Um, so I mean, it just it it's a really cool experience being out there. And you know, I I've been a space reporter not very long, so I I haven't seen many launches from Kennedy Space Center, the press site, or from um, from the causeway. But the few that I have, it's been insane it's been insanely awesome to be that close to it um what's been the most impressive vehicle that you've seen um the delta 4 heavy is yeah. really cool um i saw that for the um the first orion mission and i forget the acronym to that one ef21 um, ef21 that's it um and I, I wasn't i wasn't on nasa property for that one i was actually out at a place called space Space View Park, which is a few miles away from it, um, and that thing was big and heavy and awesome and cool, and that was just a really, really neat mission. Not and and not only because it was this super awesome, super heavy lift, um, you know, uh, Delta Four heavy, but also because it was the first time that we had seen Orion launch, and and that was going to be the capsule that's going to propel us to the next phase of, of human space exploration. So to be able to see Orion go up into this super high orbit to, to test it, um, to kind of see the raw power that would have to go behind sending people uh, back into space uh, was really, really neat. And that, that one sticks out in my mind quite a bit. 
uh, going on your past experiences, you've lived in the Florida Space Coast. Uh, how did the Space Coast change after the shuttle was retired in 2011? It changed in the sense that I wasn't covering the, the immediate change of the Space Coast. I, I wasn't um, really dialed into it. But I can tell you from from the time that I've been covering it, which is about 2013 on, so it was about two years after shuttle was retired, um, there's been there's been a shift. Um, the Space Coast is, it has, it, there's been quite a bit of commercial operations in the Space Coast over, over its storied history, but there's been a more commercial um, space at the Space Coast than ever, which which is cool. So you've seen the likes of, you know, SpaceX grabbing some of those old pads. Um, Blue Origin coming in saying not only are they going to manufacture rockets um, just south of Kennedy Space Center, they're going to launch a new orbital vehicle. Uh, from one of the Air Force pads there. Uh, just recently, we had one web satellite saying they're going to be manufacturing. Um, so you're starting to see a lot more manufacturing um, coming to the Space Coast. And, and, and not just in space, you're also seeing aerospace. Um, you know, there's Embraer has a factory here now. Um, so you're starting to see quite a bit of more commercialization and commercial efforts here. Now, after shuttle ended, you had Constellation and then you had Journey to Mars. So you're still seeing um, that that kind of engineering that happens here too. So uh, every time I'm at Kennedy Space Center, there's there's tons of people working. They're you know they're working on um, you know building the next Orion capsule for EM1. Um, they're building you know the infrastructure. They're they're building a new launch pad. Um, so it's 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 almost like business as usual still at at Kennedy. Now it, it did take a big hit. Um, but I think you're starting to see a, a resurgence of of that that coming back, and and it's actually kind of cool. Just anecdotally, um, the the launch pad, the mobile launcher that they're using for Orion and for these Orion, or I'm sorry, for SLS and these Orion missions, is actually a retrofitted shuttle pad. So I mean, this is the pad that they launched the shuttle off of. Um, so a lot of stuff is being reused. I mean, the boosters are, are pretty similar to the to the. Uh, shuttle boosters, and they've got a, a slew of RS-25 engines that they're going to be using for SLS. So it, it's kind of, it's slowed a bit, but it, it's starting to pick up and, and transition to to the next big phase in NASA. And at the same time, there's been a lot of commercial uh, companies opening up shop here. So it's, it's been, it's bumping. Oh, well, this is a follow-up. So you mentioned Blue Origins building their rocket factory in Florida. Uh, but do you see Florida still remaining the heart of space travel? Uh, we have Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia that Antares launches out of, and SpaceX has a new pad in Texas. So do you see space launches spreading out across the U.S., or do you still see everything kind of concentrated on the Space Coast? I think that the Space Coast will always maintain that dominance as this is this is where we go to space. Um to my knowledge, that's the only place where human missions will be flown from, will be launched from. You, you can't fly. Um, I don't think they're doing commercial crew at Wallops. I don't think they're going to be doing it uh, anywhere else. So, I mean, that that's where humans fly. And, and when you talk to Kennedy Space Center folks, they're saying, you know, KSC is the spaceport, uh, the, the America's spaceport. That's where it's happening. Um, SpaceX, they've got that, that launch pad uh, in, in Texas. Um, I spoke with someone at SpaceX, and you know, I'm like, are 
because there's there have been some issues with SpaceX. They they want to launch more, but you have to deal with the fact that it's you know under Air Force control, and you've you've got to jump through a lot of hoops, and they want to launch a lot more. Uh, but my SpaceX contact said, you know, we're staying there. They signed a 20-year lease. They're going to be there 20 years. They'll probably stay even longer, um, just because. The infrastructure is there at Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center. Uh, the infrastructure around the area is there too. Um, so with the port, you can bring in big, heavy pieces. There's rail lines that lead into it. Um, and then you have the the people factor, the engineers, the the manufacturers, the the brain folks, the you know the universities are actively getting people involved in in the program. So I think. It maintains its dominance. There will be other places that that'll have launches, and and that's fine. But I, I really do think that F- Florida is primed for it. It's a great location. Um, you know, it, it's it's at the right. You know, and here's my non-sciencey stuff coming out. It's at the the right latitude line to you know get up to certain orbits and stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that we we maintain. Our dominance. I also live here, so I'm a little biased and <laughs> cheerleading for it. But I, I think we 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 stay dominant. SpaceX is leading the charge in reusable orbital rockets. Blue Origin, ULA, and Airing Space also have reusability plans. What's your opinion on reusable launch vehicles? Necessity. It's an absolute necessity. Um, to be able to cut down the cost of space flight and access to space increases the amount of of increases the access to space it, i did not say that very poetically at all but <laughs> it's it's absolutely necessary um to lower the cost to get better access to space now there's there's all of these plans um to do all sorts of things but it all costs money and if we can bring that cost down the amount of exploration, the amount of science we can learn increases exponentially. Um, yes, SpaceX is leading the charge, but um, I, I think it's getting a lot of people to think about that reusability. And I mean, NASA had you know reusability built into a lot of their systems as well. You know, they reused the, I believe they reused the solid rocket boosters, and they reused the the big orange you know fuel tanks and. Um, but yeah, SpaceX definitely is leading the charge on that one. Um, I'm still skeptical as to if it'll work. Um, they're, they've done a great job recovering those boosters. I, I'm, I'm holding my breath until I actually see a Falcon 9 relaunched. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, one, once that happens, then, then I can get a little more excited about it. But I, I am glad that a lot of companies are, are thinking about that reusability because it is, it is imperative um, to reducing the cost of access to space. And then with that price drop with reusability, do you see a lot of new commercial opportunities opening up or do you just see a like, reduced cost in doing the existing activities? There, you're already seeing um, more commercial opportunities open up. Um, with the lowered cost of space and and the I like to call it the, the surgence of the CubeSat movement, um, we're able to get you know really technically intense machines in very very small packages, and we're able to get them up to space quite cheaply because they're secondary payload at this point. Um, so with the reduced access to space 
and the, the CubeSat technology, you're going to see these incredible commercial opportunities. We're already looking at, there's like three different satellite imaging companies that are leveraging CubeSat technology. Um, you're looking at companies like OneWeb Satellite um, that's going to be using these low-cost ways to get into space to develop these, you know, internet constellations. Um, that's really cool. SpaceX is dabbling in that too, although they've been very quiet about that, which makes me a little nervous. <laughs> but uh, um, but there's 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 going to be a lot of opportunity to get to space. I mean, NASA itself is coming up with its own fleet of rockets just to send CubeSats to space. Um, so, and then it, something that, that you folks, I'm sure, are aware of is that you lower the cost of access to space, you get more experiments in space. You can really mm. leverage that. Um, I mean, you can buy an off-the-shelf CubeSat kit now. Like that—that's insane. That's incredibly awesome. Um, that you know, a father and son with ten thousand dollars can send <laughs> something into space. Like that's really cool. And if that was around when my dad and I were growing up, like we would probably have an experiment in space right now. Um, it, it really does just increase the access not only to commercial ventures but academic adventures um, and just tinkerers. Like, how cool is that? And in, in a few years, we'll be able to send something to space. I think that's just insane. Very cool. Now, uh, on the topic of OneWeb and their satellite constellation, the late 90s had a lot of similar uh, global con satellite constellation projects, and a lot of them kind of failed. Do you see that the environment now is better suited for that with OneWeb and then maybe eventually SpaceX? Do you think they'll find success? I think the fact that SpaceX is interested in it goes to show you that there's going to be success. Um, I don't think that company would be investing in the technology and being so quiet about it if it wasn't going to be a successful commercial venture. I think that the technology is there now. Um, and there's there's a desire for it. We're constantly connected. Um, you know, if I don't have 4G or LTE or whatever it is on my phone, and I can't load Facebook fast enough, I get upset. You know, and but that's that's something that that we would never be thinking of five years ago. Um, so I think that the consumers are there. The people want constant access. People need constant access. Um, and I, I really do think that the technology is there. The cost is, is being lowered for both the technology and the access to space that I really think it is going to be successful. And I'll, I'll go ahead and reiterate that earlier point I made that if SpaceX is interested in this, there has got to be some commercial there's, – there's got to be a reason why they're interested in it. And, and I think that they know that it's, it's profitable and there's a desire for it. What's the most exciting new technology that you see being developed to get humans to Mars? Like, is it the Bigelow um, expandable module? Or are you really excited about, you know, the water filtration thing that turns pee into water that you talked about on your podcast? Like, is that your favorite thing? <laughs> I'm not going to say the pee thing is my favorite thing. Um, I, I, I think the habitats are, are really exciting because they're really necessary. Um, just, you know, I just recently went on a road trip with, you know, my wife and my dog and we are in a, you know, midsize SUV. And after three hours, we were all getting sick of each other. Um, so you really need to have that, that habitat if you're going to make the, what is it, eight month trip to Mars. Um, that's really important. Um, and then that's really exciting. I, th I think to kind of divert from your question a little bit and say the, the most important thing that we need to be researching 
is us. I think that there's all of this technology out there that's proven. We could go to Mars today with the technology. Now, it might be, you know, rinky-dink and duct tape together, but we could get there. Um, the one thing that couldn't get there is us as human beings. Human beings aren't meant to be in space that long. Human beings aren't meant to be on the surface of Mars. Um, and there's a lot of things that we still need to figure out. We need to figure hey. out radiation. Uh, we've got to figure out, uh, you know, what happens if we get sick. We've got to, uh, you know, just even even space sickness. We're, we still haven't really grabbed a hold of that. Um, you know, looking at Scott Kelly after a year in space, uh, he came back hurting. Um, there's there's still quite a lot of physiological things that we need to figure out and um, and make work before we can do that. Because when it comes to Mars, humans are are the weakest link when it comes to getting there. Yeah, and um, psychology is a big thing. That's absolutely it's being studied a little bit. Like I know NASA has paid what forty people to live in a bunker with no contact with the outside world and sit talking to the same people for like a year. Um, do you like? I, I definitely agree that that's the human element is the most challenging and hardest to understand. Yeah, and and I think that uh, I was I was speaking to a um, a space physiologist the other day, and uh, he thinks that we really be need need to spend a lot of time, uh, as you mentioned, Phil, looking at the the psychological aspect of things. They had that biome experiment in the '90s or something, and it went completely bonkers, and things did not work out very well. Yeah. And he was like, you know, what? we need to we need to revisit that and find out why, because, you know, if if these companies like uh, or these organizations like Mars One, they're putting people there for good. You know, it's a one way trip. Um, how are how are they going to live together? And, you know, a very small colony of people live on Mars forever. Um, you know, how does, you know, reproduction work in space? Um, there's just, there's so many different human elements that we've yet to even raise the questions on that. I, I think that's going to be the weakest link. And that's something that we really, really need to be focusing on. A little anecdote about the psychological effects of space. Uh, we have the ISS and Scott Kelly just spent a year in space and it's been pretty successful. They have to exercise to keep them physically healthy, but mentally healthy they seem pretty uh, alright. However, with uh, Skylab, uh, US's first big space station, when we launched it, uh, NASA had the agenda of, okay, we're putting up this really expensive space station, we're sending people on uh, rockets, we want to maximize our return on investment. So they had like a 24-hour, like each hour plotted of, this is the work you're going to be doing, this is the experiment you're going to be doing. And after like a week or so, the astronauts just turned off the radios back to NASA and took a day off. And so that's a really fun story that I read of, you know, that you need to give these people this free time. They are professionals, and NASA chooses the best of the best, but that's psychological, just being in space, being isolated, and having a lot of pressure to get your job done. They do need some uh, relaxation time. Yeah, I I mean, that that's interesting that you bring that up. Um, I There's another thing that's similar, and it was related to cooking. Um, I'm not sure where I heard this. I think it was talking about the, the biome experiment or something similar, where... You can send astronauts, you know, mashed potatoes and gravy in as a black bag. Um, but if you send them potatoes, I hate to do a Martian reference, but if you send them potatoes 
and have a bunch of people together from different cultures, different backgrounds, they can cook together. And that's a social bonding thing. You don't have to eat the same thing every day. And like just that one little tweak where you send ingredients instead of cooked food and it changes the whole dynamic. So, yeah, I, I agree. And, and, um, I think on one of the podcast episodes, we, we talked to a, a sociologist who kind of, um, reiterated those points that you've, you've got to kind of make it like it's home, you know, cause who wants to work in a tin can for, yeah. you know, how long are three months, six months, how long are the stints on the ISS? Uh, and then even longer when, when you're, when you're heading to Mars and then, and then you've got to think, you know, you've got to plan for what are they, you can have too much to do, but you could also have too little to do. Um, you know, there's space boredom. If you're on an eight month journey and, you know, an yeah. inflatable tent um, and there's really not much for you to do while you're out there, you're, you're going to go bonkers. You know, you gotta, you gotta stay, stay focused and stay busy. And, and you know, that our brain is, is fascinating, but it, it, it also might be our, our demise in this whole, <laughs> our whole yeah. trip to Mars thing. At the time we recorded this, Brendan was actually planning to go see the Falcon 9 for CRS-9, and we talk about that a little bit here. It's insane. Like, I I gave a, a talk um, about, you know, the coolest things that are happening in space exploration, and we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about that because, like, the first stage, like, it's 150-some feet that just literally falls from the sky, yeah. and it's this controlled... It's just, it's mind-blowing. And there's, I even in, in the, the few years that I've been doing this, I never thought that I'd write a lead that would say, yesterday, SpaceX returned a 150-foot booster that was on its way to space, and they landed it successfully on a barge in the ocean. Like, it's yeah. that's insane that I write stuff like that, and I say stuff like that, and it's actual fact. Um, but um, it's just, it's, it's really, really cool um, what they're doing, and... Uh, I can't wait until it's routine. Yeah, it's well, it's starting to get routine. I mean, it's it's starting to get routine that there. I mean, what is it? There's four successful landings so far, in less than a year. Like that's that's insane. <laughs> it's insanely yeah. awesome. And so I, I try not to be uh, trying to get too emotional in, in reporting and stuff. But sometimes I just have to say stuff like that is awesome. And that's really <laughs> cool. And is there's no way around it. It's just neat. So. Thank you so much for talking yeah. with us. This was an awesome opportunity. Sharing yeah. your NPR wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> this is. Um, yeah, nope. Anytime. I, I really do uh, enjoy talking with you guys. Your podcast is great. Um, so I'm subscribed. Um, so you should have one extra download this week. Well, <laughs> a few because I'll have to download a bunch of them. But, uh, um, but yeah, I love talking to people about space. So this is nice. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and that was... Brendan Byrne from WMFE Orlando and uh, host of the podcast, Are We There Yet? You can find Brendan on Twitter at SpaceBrendan or his podcast at AWTY Mars. You can follow us on Twitter at RIT Specs uh, or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash RIT Specs. If you want to, um, you know, if you'd like us to talk about a certain subject, or you want to tell us how we're doing, uh, we'd be more than happy to get feedback from you. I've been running the email and the Twitter for both things. I'd love to talk to you guys. So just send us an email to specscast at gmail.com and stay on the lookout for Augie live tweeting the SmallSat Conference 2016 
this weekend, August 6th to 8th. Our next episode will be a debriefing from the SmallSat Conference 2016. And then after that, we'll have an interview with astronaut Chris Hadfield. And then later on this September, we'll be talking to president and CEO of United Launch Alliance, Tori Bruno. We've got a lot on our plate, but it'll be really fun and we really look forward to sharing it with you. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpexCast. We'll see you next week.